Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring psychedelics and spirituality. My guest is Dr. Rick Strassman, a professor, associate professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. He is the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, a doctor's revolutionary research into the biology of near-death and mystical experience. He has also written Inner Paths to Outer Space and... Most recently, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, a new science of spiritual revelation in the Hebrew scriptures. He's also recently written a novel, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. Welcome, Rick. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you. You are in a unique position as an individual who both has had extensive spiritual practice, both in terms of Zen Buddhism and also Jewish uh, studies, and you've been a uh, researcher of psychedelic drugs. There are very few people who can wear both hats. Uh, once I decided I wanted to study this, the biological bases of spiritual experiences by doing research into the effects of psychedelic drugs, I also wanted firsthand experience with a religious practice and a discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in my early 20s, I established a long-term relationship with the Zen Buddhist community uh, when I was 20. 22 or so. Mm. Yeah. And we, I was a member in good standing for 23, 24 mm. years. I was ordained as a lay Buddhist. Um, I was married at the monastery. I helped establish an affiliated group and helped to run that, uh, in Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, for years. So, yeah, uh, I wanted to learn to meditate. I wanted to you know, see what Buddhist scriptures had to say about spirituality. Because if I was going to look at the biology of spiritual states, um, I needed to understand the spiritual states as well as the biology. Well, and Buddhism would seem to me to be a natural choice, given that uh, the the famous book, The Psychedelic Experience by Leary, Alpert, and Metzner, uh, uses the Tibetan Book of the Dead as sort of a roadmap for understanding the LSD experience. I think the conflation of Eastern religion and the psychedelic movement subculture is a uh, you know, very interesting one. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's assumed automatically uh, that there's a relationship between the psychedelic the drug effect and Eastern religions, mm-hmm. Hinduism and Buddhism. And I think that's because they appeared on the West Coast and the East Coast basically around the you know, same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a time of change, which meant abandoning your uh, your past. It was an era in the 1960s where people used to say, never trust anyone over 30. Uh, right. And you know, Judaism was certainly over 30 years old, <laughs> Christianity. But you know, Buddhism was brand new, mm-hmm. and it was quite appealing uh, to those who were rejecting their you know, father's tradition. Yeah. Um, so within that context, I learned uh, some transcendental meditation in college. I think I was 20. 
one of um, one of my roommates, you know, said it's really great for headaches. So I said, yeah. well, I get headaches. Uh-huh. So yeah, yeah, and it helped with my headaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was a altered state. It was mild. Uh, it was appealing. Um, I didn't see a lot of overlap with a high dose, you know, psychedelic experience, but it you know, seemed like the, like you know there was potential there. Mm. Uh, and we started a class on Hinduism and you know the Bhagavad Gita. I didn't find that kind of religion very appealing intellectually. It was mm. more you know, faith based uh, belief, um, faith, just kind of uh, you know, uh, I guess you know turning yourself over. Mm. Um, so I was more attracted to the intellectual rigor of Buddhism. And took a class in college on Indian Buddhism, which is quite you know, philosophical. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I went off to medical school and got depressed and dropped out and ended up at the monastery and learned Zen studies and practice. Mm-hmm. And I gather you found that uh, meditation was a healthy practice. You stuck with it for twenty years. Right. I still practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really a member of the organization. But uh, I loved the practice. Um, I, I, um, I loved the you know, the practice itself. Mm-hmm. It, you know, sitting cross-legged, breathing, just you know, being aware, and the striving. Uh, you know, the active you know, passivity. Mm-hmm. You could really relax and really apply yourself at the same time. And in our, you know, in the community I studied with. There is an emphasis on enlightenment, on Kensho, mm-hmm. like the breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, so you were trained to sit as relaxed in a manner as possible, but to be aiming towards this incredibly profound culmination of all experience at this at the same time. You, well, the, the enlightened state, and it required a lot of work. So. After a while, it didn't seem like enlightenment was in the cards, but it really helped me study. Uh-huh. Uh, I could really, you know, shut things out, mm-hmm. uh, and I could enjoy the study. It you know, resonated with me because mm-hmm. I wasn't you know, resisting it emotionally or physically. Yeah. So once I went back to medical school, I was a studying machine, mm-hmm. and also was, you know, doing um, a lot of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I moved back to California to train in psychiatry and to be closer to the head temple uh, and helped establish that uh, that affiliate group. Um, One of my interests in relating psychedelics and Buddhism uh, stems from conversations that I had with the young monks back in uh, the 70s. I would ask all of them when I got them alone, you know, have you ever taken LSD? And you know, 90% you said yes. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how important was that LSD experience in you becoming a monk? And they said it was critical, it was crucial. You know, so I said, aha, that supports, you know, the idea that there is you know, some kind of relationship yeah. you know, between the psychedelic and the spiritual uh, life. Well, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong about Zen meditation in particular, is that the emphasis is on the ordinary, not on seeking visions and, and extraordinary states of consciousness at all, but I, I think, as they say, you know, carrying water and chopping wood. Right. Well, it you know, kind of you know, depends on your teacher. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, some of the you know, teachers emphasized 
being as attentive as possible to everything that you're doing. But you know, for the organization I studied under, you know, the, uh, you know that kind of attention, that kind of contentment and comfort with the world, were only preliminaries. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, to going uh, you know, for the gold, mm-hmm. which was the enlightened state. You know, because if it's uh, you know, if it is an enlightened state, it it sticks with you. Um, you know, so even though you push hard, uh, you don't have to push you know, so hard you know, the next time. I don't think. Well, wouldn't you say that uh, with regard to meditation or with regard to psychedelics, that there's a difference between an enlightened state and a visionary state? Yeah. It, it's depending on your definition of these things. You know, what is a mystical state? What's a religious experience? What's a spiritual state? <clears throat> so in the Prophetic States book, DMT and the Soul of, of the Prophecy, I begin the book, you know, by defining my terms. Yeah. You know, what is consciousness? What is an altered state? What's religious? What's spiritual? Um, you know, sp- spiritual tends to be, you know, thoughts, feelings, uh, which are quite elevated. They're, you know, valued and they're rare and they inspire. Uh, so a, a spiritual experience, would be one in which those per, those kinds of characteristics of the actual state itself mm-hmm. uh, are dominant. You know, then religious experience is a spiritual experience which occurs within you know, some kind of uh, you know religious you know, setting, you know, like enlightenment, let's mm-hmm. say in a Buddhist one. Um, yeah, you know, so you can um, also divide them up in a way that I do in the prophetic states. Book between unitive mystical, which is the white light, yeah. uh, you're merged with the source of all being. It's empty of content, no feeling, no uh, ideas, no thinking, no words. You know, so that's you know the unitive uh, mystical state. Mm-hmm. And the uh, other um, category could be called the interactive relational state. You, you know, where you are in a very altered state, but you're interacting as a Discrete you know, personality with other discrete you know, sources of information and will. Um, so, you know, depending on the you know the context, you know, some traditions you know, value the unitive mystical state, and some you know, value the interactive relational one. Mm-hmm. Well. You went through something of a, I'm going to call it a conversion experience, uh, but maybe it's the opposite of that. Uh, you had an experience that caused you to turn away from a Buddhist practice that had been going on for decades and move back uh, to the study of uh, biblical Judaism. Yeah, it was kind of a you know, complicated you know, set of dynamics. Uh, you know, when we were all younger, the junior monks and I would, you know, talk about psychedelics and my interest in them and studying them. And they were quite encouraging. They would say, yeah, that makes sense. According to my LSD trip in college, and you know, was quite consistent. And, you know, those are some good questions. Let's go deeper. Yeah. You know, but once I started, you know, doing the research, it became a little more controversial within the community to discuss in the same breath, you know, mm-hmm. drugs and Buddhism. So, you know, that was kind of, you know, disappointing. And, um, 
But in a way, um, it wasn't because it's a you know religious organization. It isn't an academic center. Right. You know, so there's certain you know, priorities in one which aren't mm-hmm. uh, operative in uh, the other. Yeah, you know, so I you know wanted to you know carry on an academic you know discourse on you know the notion, and you know they were saying, no, that's not how it works here. Yeah, yeah, and so it's like okay, <laughs> it's been great. I've really enjoyed working with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, so uh, I then got interested in Judaism, Jewish thought, uh, Jewish ideas. Uh, you, you know, for one. Uh, you know, function was like another spiritual home. Mm-hmm. I'd been, uh, you know, part of that community for quite a long time. So I thought, well, I was raised Jewish. I'm born Jewish. You know, what's going on within, you know, my own tradition? Uh, so, you know, that was, you know, one of the reasons that I returned to Jewish, you know, thinking. You, on the other, and the one that, you know, got me hooked is that once I started to read the Hebrew Bible, you know, the Old Testament, it was, it, it seemed as if the experience of prophetic, you know, consciousness, uh, was a really good fit for the DMT ex- uh, uh, uh-huh. experience, uh, because most of our volunteers had interactive relational, uh, you know, kinds of states. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, you know, so Buddhism, with its emphasis on enlightenment and the unitive mystical state, couldn't quite contain the, you know, the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, of what we were seeing, you know, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's all about people speaking with spiritual entities, either God or angels. Yes. Uh, so that seemed pretty interesting. And the more I learned about the Bible, could understand it better. You know, the more this idea of the you know, prophetic state started to clarify itself as mm-hmm. one that would be at least you know, phenomenologically you know, similar to the DMT effect, and would provide an effective springboard for, mm. you know, bridging spiritual, you know, dialogue and you know, biological dialogue. Of course, I think as you point out in your book, there isn't any particular evidence that the ancient Hebrew prophets were using uh, substances uh, and theogens or psychedelics of any kind. No, there really isn't any evidence. Um yeah, and if you take into account you know, the existence of endogenous DMT, it you know, may be a human you know, neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. You know, so it may go up and down depending, sure, uh, and influence you in a in a you know way that uh, kind of occurs on occasions. Prophecy. Mm-hmm. Well, the I learned one interesting fact reading your book, and that is, I should have known it, I suppose, but that according to the rabbinical tradition, prophecies ended when the uh, second temple was uh, rebuilt by uh, Cyrus the Great, as I recall. Well, so the concept of the end of prophecy uh, seems to me as much a political question as a, either a biological or a spiritual one. Uh-huh. Um, I think it occurred around the you know, time it did because a lot of people were claiming to be the Messiah in the, in, in the you know, Second Temple period. Uh-huh. And uh, they claimed to be able to exclaim prophetic utterances and their you know, books you know, were almost as legitimate as the ones in the you know, canon. You know, so, you know, the rabbi said, we can't, you know, have all these people saying they're Messiah and adding on, you know, to the, uh, 
you know, to the canon. Uh, you know, so let's, you know, standardize it, which, you know, meant that the speeches that these people were giving were not prophetic because, you know, prophecy is over, the canon's closed, there's no more prophetic utterances, which can, which, you know, constitute scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, there was this saying, it's much better to be a rabbi than a prophet. Much better. Yeah, you'd be harangued as a prophet. Uh-huh. You know, compared to, you know, shamans or the ones, you know, proto-shamans from the West who, you know, want to be shamans. You know, they, it's their calling and they study. Or, uh, you know, Buddhists who want to be enlightened. They say, I want to be enlightened. You won't find a prophet saying, I want to be a prophet. It's an extremely discomforting position. You know, because of, you know, the news that you often carry, uh, the standing up, you know, to authority and, you know, to tradition. The scorn that is heaped on you, you know, by the public and you know the ruling class, yeah, you know, so it isn't a thing that you know that anyone would choose. You know, the one interesting uh, story is you know Jeremiah had a attendant. Um, what was his name? Um, it'll come to me. Oh, and his name was Baruch. Mm-hmm. And you know, Baruch was a you know, faithful attendant of Jeremiah, and he really wanted to be a prophet. He was so angry he wasn't being like he was you know wasn't experiencing you know communication with God. If if I remember correctly, he was like a scribe writing down what Jeremiah uh, had said. He was like a, a literary executioner or something. Right? Yeah. Well, well. So God speaks you know through Jeremiah you know to Baruch and 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 you know tells him. You're asking too much, Baruch. Isn't it enough to, you know, be the scribe? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're asking too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to be uh, a prophet, oftentimes it won't happen. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to be, like, you know, Moses just complained, you know, bitterly, uh, you know, like a first couple, three calls mm-hmm. you know, from God to become, you know, the, del- you know, the deliverer. Well, you know, I just f- finished uh, three monologues that have been released on this channel about Peter Kingsley's book called Catafalque. Uh, its uh, subtitle is Carl Jung and the End of Humanity. And basically, he argues that Jung was a prophet and that Jung struggled against it his whole life. He didn't want to be called a prophet. He wanted to be thought of as a scientist, not a prophet. Uh-huh. Uh, and Peter Kingsley makes the point that as you've just said, no prophet wants to be a prophet. They all struggle against it. Right, right. Well, they struggle against it and, you know, they try to refuse it mm-hmm. you know, when it's handed to them in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Well, you know, this brings up the question of true prophecy and you know, false prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there are you know, criteria. Oh, you know, one thing that might be helpful yeah. is you were calling or you were raising the notion of Jung being a prophet. Yes. And one of the ways that's usually defined is predicting the future. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, seeing into the future in an accurate sort and, of manner. And Peter Kingsley makes a point to saying that's not prophecy at all. A true prophet is one who sees the present. Well, that's also true. <laughs> But in the case of you know seeing into the future, mm-hmm. you know the predictive elements. Yes, you know that is a you know, function of the translation of the Hebrew word you know, for prophet into the Greek, which was was the first you know non-Hebrew translation. Yeah, and the and well, so the Hebrew word is navi. Navi. Yeah, which comes from the Hebrew root nuv or nava or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can come from any one of three or four roots. Um, you know, but the Greeks, with their interest in you know, divination, being able to predict the future, uh, translated it prophetes, mm-hmm. which means you know, seeing into the future, yeah. you know, proto-seeing. 
But even the word divination does suggest, like prophet, there's a divine element. Right, and the application of that specific divine element is you know, seeing into the future, mm-hmm. um, you know, divining. So, you know, one could call Jung you know, prophetic in that way if one you know defined being a you know, prophet as you know, foretelling the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, you know, as as you mentioned, there's a lot of you know, prophets whose predictions ever came true, or who just spoke about other things that he or she, you know, never you know, predicted the future. But, the, you know, their importance is, you know, the teaching at that moment and in that place. Mm-hmm. Well, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew prophets, many of them warned, uh, it was sort of like, if you don't change your ways, terrible destruction is going to befall us. And then there was the uh, Babylonian exile and terrible destruction mm-hmm. that, that did occur. And as you point out in your book, the prophets uh, lost respect because uh, for all their prophecy, they weren't able to prevent that terrible destruction of the first temple and, and the yeah. whole Hebrew nation. I know. Well, look at Jeremiah. I, I mean, talk about morose. I, I mean, he is so... So lachrymose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's a few inspiring you know, verses in Jeremiah, especially uh, you know, Jeremiah you know, 17, 14, um, which I refer to a lot in the Joseph Levy book as, you know, healing me. Your novel. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, my novel. It, it's, uh, it's just you know, calling upon God to you know, save you and to heal you according to his benchmarks mm-hmm. you know, rather than your own. Like I oh I want my arm to start hurting or to stop hurting or you know whatever you know that may not be God's idea of healing you yeah. uh, so and you know and there's a couple other inspiring things that he you know, says but you know mostly it's if you don't change your ways you know the temple's going to fall Jerusalem's going to fall you're going to be exiled and and uh, you know cooperate with the Babylonians you know don't you know fight them you know better to you know live and fight another day. Mm-hmm. And to maintain the culture and you know the religion, and you know the Jews called him a traitor, and you know the Babylonians. Uh, it was quite a complicated thing for Jeremiah. Yeah, you know, but you know the city didn't repent. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. The whole idea of reward and punishment mm-hmm. in the Bible, which is one of the reasons most you know, secular, humanist, educated you know Westerners say reward and punishment. That's you know, so patriarchal. It's so. You know, cause and effect. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the Bible seems like a horrible book if you read it carefully. It's it's full of all sorts of stories of murder and betrayal and uh, even genocide. Uh, well, there's a lot in the Hebrew Bible that's pretty grim, uh, but I would say the majority is pretty inspiring. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about you know the punishment is that the text spells out a particular. You know, system of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Like, if you do this, then yeah. you know, this will follow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's Buddhist. Everything comes about, you know, now from what happened before. If mm-hmm. you do this, then you know, certain you know, consequences are automatic. Yeah. You know, because of the laws of nature mm-hmm. and you know, moral laws, mm-hmm. which uh, you know, could be you know, seen as emanating from the same source and thus permanent <clears throat> and eternal. Um, you know, so it, uh, Spells out things like you know proper behavior, like you know if if you move your neighbor's you know boundary line, that's bad. Yeah. Uh, and you know understand the golden rule and practice it, and you know believe in one God that you serve. 
Uh, and you know, they're saying if you believe those things and you do those things, then things will go well with you, mm-hmm. which spells out a certain you know, manual in a way mm-hmm. of living your life according to a divinely inspired uh, kind of tradition. Well, one of the themes that runs right through your book, uh, DMT, and the soul of prophecy, is the idea of God. And, and the idea of accepting, even from a scientific perspective or a, a theological perspective, the idea that uh, prophecy is not generated by humans, it's generated by God. God is the source of prophecy. Right, right. Um well, I spent a lot of time in the early chapters of DMT and the soul of prophecy, you know, taking you know, the reader by the hand uh, from the end of the DMT book to you know going smack dab into the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the early you know, chapters is about God. Um, so most well, the first word in the Hebrew Bible, uh, or you know, the second is you know God. In the beginning, you know, God created. Right. Uh, and for most people, that's just a stumbling block. What's God? Who's God? I don't believe in God. Uh, yeah, you know, so, um. And yet God is, the idea of God is pretty well established in the whole Western uh, culture. Yeah, it's impossible to eradicate. Uh, it's probably the most enduring idea there is. So, uh, you know, either believing in God or not believing in God or wondering about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got my first, you know, toehold to understanding God through Buddhism, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had to do with karma, you know, cause and effect. You know, cause and effect is eternal. But the thing about, you know, cause and effect is that things are created, exist, and then pass away. So the law of karma, you know, had to be that way, too. It had to, you know, be created, exists now, and is going to end at some point, because it's a thing, you know, it's a unit. Uh, it isn't an empty, uh, you know, it's empty of, of an essence, but, uh, it's, you know, created. It's a thing. Well, this concept of emptiness is very important in Buddhism. It's not a concept you find in Judaism, to my knowledge. Well, you know, not within the text, you know, not within the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. You know, the rabbis allude to it and the Kabbalists. You know, the Zohar, uh, mm-hmm. the mystical branch of Buddhism, uh, I mean, of you know, Judaism, uh, yes. emphasizes the importance of, you know, merging with the one, the unitive mystical state. Mm-hmm. You know, but there are no unitive mystical states in the entire Hebrew Bible. Right. It, it's all interactive and mm-hmm. relational. Yeah, you know, so I, you know, began to think about, you know, karma as existing and then, you know, not existing. If, you know, if, if the law of, you know, cause and effect, you know, says everything, uh, is, uh, is you know, created, exists, and goes away, then that applies to the law of karma. So I thought, well, you know, who created karma and who sustains karma? So I started thinking, or, you know, what created karma and what sustains karma? You know, so that was an inkling of the existence of God. And uh, the other was, you know, the nature of cause and effect. You know, cause and effect encourages us, you know, to do certain things and discourages us uh, from, you know, doing other things. Right. Like, you know, you, uh, if you're always angry, um, your health is going to suffer. Yeah. And that's, you know, cause and effect. So I thought, well, isn't that interesting that, you know, cause and effect is uh, steering us in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. There are certain, you know, values that are inherent in the system of cause mm-hmm. and effect. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, whose values are those? And, you know, you know, and that began to let me think about, you know, the mind of God, what God wants from us. Uh it's, you know, so in, in a way, uh, you know, God 
both you know, created and sustains a you know, system of karma which encourages the virtues, discourages the vices, mm-hmm. and uh, emanates you know, from the same source as the laws of nature. And, and you suggest, if I remember correctly, that for people who have been through a psychedelic experience, or many of them, and are looking for a spiritual tradition which would be consistent with these very intense experiences that they've had, that uh, it would be good to find an experience, uh, find a tradition which is compatible with their cultural upbringing so that they don't have dissonance around that. And also, you emphasize the, the importance of a spiritual tradition that acknowledges a deity. Right. Um, those are both uh, important. The first, because of you know, the nature of most you know, people's experiences on uh, psychedelic drugs. They're usually interactive and relational. You know, they're struggling with stuff. They're talking to stuff. They're walking around. Yeah. Uh, it isn't unit. It isn't unit of mystical, even though that might be their implicit, you know, goal. Uh, but often, it, in, in my experience with psychedelics and LSD in particular, it's like you have this relational part, and you're struggling and struggling, and then it, all of a sudden, there's like a breakthrough into another realm where you just let go of ego and you see everything from a, a completely different perspective where you're non-attached. Right, and I think you know an interactive relational. Uh, you know, guidebook or, you know, model to fall back on when you're struggling with the relations in that state. Yeah. You know, it could be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, there's a lot of experience or there, there's a lot of examples in, you know, prophetic visions of the prophet being confused, being afraid. Uh, um, it, they can't understand what's going on. You know, what's the information that you're trying to, uh, to, to exchange with me or to, you know, provide. And there's a lot of you know, guideposts you know, for how to negotiate dealing with entities, with you know, with angels. Mm-hmm. Like you plead, you pray, you praise, uh, you ask direct questions, um, you ask for help. Mm. Yeah, you know, so you know, those are all spelled out in the text, uh, and they've been you know, tried and true for a few you know, thousand-year-old you know, prophetic tradition of being able to extract information from a DMT-like state. Mm-hmm. So the visionary experiences reported of prophets are akin to the visionary experiences of uh, psychedelic ex- uh, users. Uh, well, especially you know the phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Um, I compared the DMT state very carefully with you know what I you know conjured up as a uh, you know prophetic state. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we were talking earlier, most people think of you know, prophecy as foretelling. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that isn't always the case in a uh, prophetic you know, figure in the text. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sarah spoke to God and, and was never uh, you know, foretelling. As a, as a parapsychologist, I make the distinction between precognition, which is seeing the future, and prophecy. I don't think they're at all the same. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I define the prophetic state as any spiritual experience uh-huh. described in the text. Okay. It could be visions, could be voices, might be inspiration, yeah. might be strength that just you know descends on somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, poetry. Uh, you know, being skilled in crafts. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things can be spiritual gifts. 
Well, what I found particularly interesting in your book is that then you draw upon the medieval Jewish scholars who, who were schooled in Aristotelian philosophy and, but were still re- devout religious believers, uh, certainly believers in God, and they tried to use their philosophy to uh, integrate it, uh, to develop a new theology for Judaism. Once I finished making the comparison between you know, the visions, you know, the, you know, the phenomenology of the two states, it seemed clear to me that, that the DMT effect was not a prophetic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I said, well, or I thought, well, what's the difference? <clears throat> well, there were two differences. You know, one was the level of development of interactions. Uh, most of the volunteers, well, all the DMT volunteers didn't know how to extract as much information as they could. Mm-hmm. You know, they were startled. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the technique. They didn't yeah. have the understanding of, you know, who are they confronting? You know, who are they meeting up with? You know, what can they provide them? What's the best way to, uh, you know, uh, obtain that information? Um, you know, you know. So I developed a new category, which was relatedness, which then you know moved things over in you know, favor of the complexity and the uniqueness of the prophetic state. You know, the, like, you, you know, the balance was completely on the, Well, you also point side. out that they had schools of prophecy in, in the uh, ancient times of the first temple in, in Israel, that, uh, and communities of prophets. It wasn't just uh, some guy on his own out in the desert. You know, there's a, you know there are a, a couple of references you know, to bands of prophets. Mm-hmm. You know, Samuel uh, used to lead a band of prophets. Um, and uh, there's a school of prophets, which was led by both Elijah and Elisha, his mm-hmm. disciple. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were studying prophecy as a school. Yeah. You know, so they must have been studying and practicing. Yeah. You know, miracles occurred in those schools. Um, Elisha sweetening a, you know, a you know, bitter well of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the cruises of oil, like, you know, 100, you know, cruises of oil from, you know, one pot. Uh-huh. Yeah. It must have been an interesting community. You know, those schools. I actually do recall uh, reading a study at one time that related the school of prophecy to the witch of Endor. In, in the Bible, that there oh, really? was a community of witches in this location, very nearby the school of prophecy, and that they had uh, interaction. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, well, that's a great story, the witch of Endor, who you know, conjures up the ghost of Samuel. Yes. Yeah, you know, Saul wants to find out what's going to happen to him. And you know, Samuel is in the ground. He comes up, the spirit comes up, and yeah. says, you'll be joining me soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a sad story. You know, there are schools of you know, prophets, but what, you know, what they did is, is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a story of Elijah, you know, going in, you know, to the, you know, to the desert, you know, to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he just, you know, lays down, but it's hard to say, you know, what he was doing. I, I wouldn't think he, you know, wanted to die. He was supposedly carried up to heaven in a chariot. Right, right. While he was still alive. Yeah, yeah, he you know went to the same cave that Moses went to when he mm-hmm. saw God's glory. So I don't think he was you know ready. You know, so, you know, so there must have been you know something that that he was doing. Mm-hmm. At, at the very least, he stopped eating and he stopped drinking, mm-hmm. and was then you know, visited by an angel who mm-hmm. said, "Eat and drink." You know, so that may have been caused from the stress of the starvation. Yeah.
And, and I can well imagine that as a scientist, you're looking at what are the effects of uh, fasting or starvation on the biology that might produce visionary experiences. Well, you know, my study of the philosophers from the Middle Ages led me to wonder what's the mechanism of the prophetic experience. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with the influence of God's efflux, overflow, emanation, onto the imagination and the intellect, which were the two ways that the Aristotelians divided the mind. And it seemed as if those techniques stimulated the imagination. For example, fasting, Hmm. uh, if it raises DMT levels, would stimulate the imagination. And by imagination, I don't mean made up. I mean, it's perceptual, sensory and emotional. Hmm. You can counter it, you know, with the intellect, which is just abstract. It's only ideas. The imagination is everything but ideas. So, you know, they believed that the efflux from God, the you know, prophetic overflow, which stimulated prophecy in the prophet, stimulated the imagination, which had visions and voices, you know, feelings. Mm-hmm. And you know, then the intellect could extract the information because it knew what it was seeing and you know, knew how to communicate it. The imagination is like a conduit between the intellect and the divine. Well, I think it's a conduit. You also might look at it as a screen, a projection screen. Like on that screen, you, you see and you feel the information that's trying to be you know, downloaded, and then you extract that information with your intellect. One of the philosophers, Maimonides, believed that prophecy was the perfection of the intellect and the imagination. Like in the full prophet, those two faculties were at their highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could improve your intellect by study. But there wasn't much room for growth with the imagination, which is where the psychedelics may play a role uh-huh. in stimulating the imagination, which is, I think, their primary effect. Uh, the you know, content of the DMT experience was not that profound. You know, the interrelatedness wasn't as good as in the prophetic state yeah. or as you know, fulsome. And the information content was even less so. So the information content uh, of prophecy or perhaps of any religious experience depends on your intellect, mm-hmm. uh, your you know rational fa- faculty. Mm-hmm. You know, like how do you interpret what just happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what just happened is displayed or played out or you know, channeled through the imagination. Did you ever have the opportunity to administer DMT to people who were advanced uh, meditative practitioners or advanced students of any particular religious uh, discipline? Uh, in the DMT study, we had a volunteer who was a former Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and his experiences weren't that big. Uh, he could still move. He could still think. Uh, so... He you know, supported in my you know, theory you know, that there's an increase of DMT in naturally occurring mm-hmm. spirituality. If that's the case, then maybe giving extra DMT wouldn't have that much mm-hmm. of an effect. This reminds me of the story I think you cite in, in your book of uh, uh, Ramdas, who met his guru Neem Karoli Baba in India, gave him a hit of acid to see what would happen. And the, the guru said, sure, I'll take it, and swallowed it, and there was no change whatsoever. 
Well, you know, that story was key in my understanding of endogenous, you know, DMT and uh-huh. the, uh, you know, non-drug related state yeah. or caused state. Um, but that whole, uh, but, but, you know, the whole, you know, theory was kind of blown out of the water by one guy in our study, just kind of an average Joe. He was a bartender. He liked to swim. I think he was in school at the community college. Just an everyday, regular guy. He never meditated like a day in his life. We gave him a full dose of DMT, and he said, have you given me it yet? Hmm. Yeah, he just had, like, no effect. It was as if we gave him you know, salt water. I see. So I, you know, ran down to the pharmacy. You know, did you mix things up? And they said, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, you know, the guy was completely unresponsive to DMT, and he wasn't extraordinary in any way. I see. So, so there's a bell curve uh, in terms of responsiveness that may be unrelated to uh, questions of endogenous DMT production or spiritual attainment. Uh, that could be. Yeah. Uh, or I think we're just at the beginning of understanding the endogenous DMT story. So, um, I mean, it it could be, it might not be that if you're spiritually advanced, you're less responsive to DMT. You, you know, there's a story you know, that Tim, you know, th- th- uh, which you know, Tim Leary likes to tell about you know, giving LSD in L.A. to a Hindu monk. Uh, and uh, the Hindu monk uh, was miserable. Oh. It was just a bad, bad trip. You know, so it you know, could be that you are less responsive or you might be as responsive as mm-hmm. anyone else. There's a lot of individual difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what's really interesting about this, you know, time in academic research is we're starting to get a handle on the, you know, the, you know, the mechanisms mm-hmm. of how psychedelics work and the mechanisms of spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, so I think the confluence of, you know, theology and, you know, science is going to begin to uh, meet up over a spiritual experience, uh, as the, you know, common, you know, the, the, you know, common phenomenon that draws both, uh, you know, sets of disciplines together. Of course, there's a, a field called neurotheology, and, uh, I think you coined a term, if I'm correct, Theo, Neurology. Right, right. Well, you know, the current reigning paradigm of how the brain is on a spiritual state is called, you know, it, it, um, it's what you could call a, you know, bottom up experience mm-hmm. or, you know, bottom up kind of model. You know, uh, you know, neurotheology, you know, the neuro part comes first. It's your brain on drugs or your brain, you know, thinking that it's encountering, you know, something yeah. divine or spiritual. Um, you know, so I developed a, you know, top-down kind of model where, you know, God is the originator and the brain is designed to expedite communication between the divine level and the material, um, you know, level. Um, so, you know, so that is called, you know, th- uh, that is called, uh, uh, uh you know, theoneurology. Mm-hmm. You know, theo comes first. Yeah. I, I have heard it said among some researchers that, uh, in fact, psychedelic researchers, that the idea that the brain doesn't generate consciousness, but the brain serves really as a filter to reduce consciousness. Because if we were aware of everything, like in cosmic consciousness, we can't function. So the brain blocks this out. And one of the surprising findings I understand from LSD research is that in spite of the intensity of the reported experiences, 
because uh, in some occasions, the brain activity during LSD is rather unremarkable. I think it'll be worked out. Uh, the uh, the brain circuitry mm-hmm. um, and the you know, pharmacology. The current thinking about how psychedelics work is that they modify the default mode network. Uh, you know, the idea of the you know, filtering mechanism in the RAFE, uh has been you know, supplanted you know, by this you know notion that the default mode network, which is a state of electrical and metabolic activity of the brain, mm-hmm. is modified under the influence of LSD mm-hmm. or of you know, psilocybin. Default mode network. Default mode network, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That may be the means by which the drugs exert their effects, make you more suggestible and make you more able to you know, manifest or disclose the contents of your mind. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, ties in, you know, to the information content, uh, of either the prophetic or the, you know, psychedelic state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where does that information come from? You know, does it come you know, from the outside or is it the result of the divine activating something which is inherent? Our own wisdom, our own knowledge. You know, so, you know, that was a big debate, uh, among the medievalists. I suspect it's something like a handshake. Uh, I think that's going to be the inevitable conclusion, mm-hmm. uh, because you always have a mind and a brain. It's mm-hmm. always idiosyncratic. It's not perfect. And there's always going to be an external, you know, source of information, which you're able to perceive more or less accurately, depending on your capacities, mm-hmm. your intellectual and imaginative mm-hmm. capacities. It, it sort of reminds me of the famous fresco in the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out and touching Adam's hand. Right. I mean, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, man can't do it all himself. That's hubris. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, God can't do it all himself or herself or itself. It needs, you know, something to interact with in existence. Mm-hmm. Otherwise... Uh, it's just kind of moot. I suppose in concluding, Rick, that uh, you've explored Buddhism, you've explored Judaism. It suggests to me that uh, your early interest in psychedelics has led to a continual uh, interest in, in spiritual paths. I get the impression, you know, right, you're still searching for that. Yeah, you know, it may have begun in you know, second grade. Like, I was a smartass in you know, second grade. And, uh, you know, the teacher said, if you do that one more time, you're going to the corner. So, uh, I did it one more time, and I ended up in the corner. And it was really nice. <laughs> it, 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 it was quiet. It was uh-huh. calm. Uh, yeah, so I thought, you know, this is interesting. Like, you know, you're seven years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, I've always been interested in altered states and Spirituality encompasses altered states. Yeah. I like you know, chemistry. Uh, but it was the altered state, the spiritual, you know, so-called experience, which was the most attractive. Yeah, so I've mostly just, you know, researched. And then when I've developed or generated a certain amount of data, you know, see where that leads. Mm-hmm. And then kind of uh, explore as far as you can, you know, see where it leads next. Mm-hmm. Like in my Jewish studies, I don't belong to a community I don't really have an ongoing relationship, you know, with a rabbi. I don't do a, 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 a lot of prayer. I mostly study mm-hmm. and trying to understand what the Bible is saying. You know, so that involves language and philology and grammar. Um, 
and uh, you know that for me is the best you know source of knowledge right now. It has to do with the information content of the spiritual worlds, which is laid down in the Hebrew Bible anyway, in a very culturally compatible manner. I mean, there's stuff to learn every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you can inculcate that into people somehow or another, uh, then when people trip, they'll have more to work with uh, and perhaps get more out of their experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Rick Stressman, thank you once again for being with me and sharing your wealth of knowledge in these things. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for being with us.